Hi, everybody. It's Ed Krasnick. Welcome to the Mental Health Comedy Podcast. And this is the show where we talk all about mental health, mental fitness, and we talk about it because it's a verb. We practice skills. We exercise the skills, games, comedy bits, whatever, because mental health is a practice. Mental fitness is a practice. It's like exercise. It's like a thing. And that's what we do here. My partner is Jennifer Kalari. She's the first lady of the frontal lobe. She'll be along shortly. And our special guest today, I am so excited to have this person on the show, a real hero from the HBO special, The Great Depression. The great Gary Gullman is here. So we got Gary Gullman, we got Jennifer Kalari coming right up. Today's show is brought to you by the new mental health comedy game show, What's My Feeling? Families from all over America compete for up to $100,000 if they can guess what each family member is actually feeling. Watch as our contestants go through challenges like a passive aggressive family plunge, holidays with my rageaholic uncle, overburdened mom explosion obstacle course, and dad's emotionally frozen dinner. It's a nuclear family reactor party. Join us on What's My Feeling. Now we always like to welcome people no matter what emotional state you're in. Here are emotional shout outs. If you've ever used the phrase, I'm totally alone in this marriage, welcome. If your therapist says, I think we need to take a break, it's not you, it's me. Welcome. If your therapist gets so angry for you that you have to calm them down, welcome. If you've ever seen relatives knit angrily, welcome. And if the only way to get space in your own home is in the shower with the water running and your headphones on, welcome. And if you're beating yourself up even now, there's always a place for you right here on the Mental Health Comedy Podcast. And right now, let's join Jennifer Kalari and Gary Goleman on the show. Here we go. Glad you're aboard. Okay, ladies and gentlemen, boys and girls, children of all ages, this is the Mental Health Comedy Podcast. I'm Ed Krasnick. My co-host Jennifer Kalari is here. Also, a very special guest, a guy that I feel I have a lot in common with, who has done so much more with his depression than I have. <laughs> uh, and I'll hold on that. <laughs> a gentleman who was from, from my hometown area, I, I believe originally from the mean streets of Peabody, I'm not sure. Yes. The mean streets of Peabody. I was born in Lynn, not, not that terribly far away. But wow. uh, yeah, but we should have met long before this, but I'm so glad it's happening now really the most amazing uh, special on uh, mental health, mental illness, and comedy all mixed together. The Great Depression on HBO with Judd Apatow directing and with the great Gary Gullman. Oh my God. I cannot believe that you're here. Thank so, you. Yeah. So the first thing that I have to ask you is what the hell happened? No, no, no. Is how, <laughs> is how the hell did you What's this evolution? What's the what's the 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 curve from psych hospital to Carnegie Hall? How does that how do we go? Because usually it's Carnegie. How do you get to Carnegie Hall practice? And this is how do you get to Carnegie Hall depression? Yeah, I don't like to put it th that way, but I can't imagine another another route because it was 
I mean, it, it was it was coming to terms and and talking about the great scourge of my life that that propelled me to the next level of comedy uh, achievement, I guess, is in terms of getting a large enough fan base to fill that that hall. So how, how did it happen? I mean, I wasn't a good enough comedian really to talk about depression while I was young. I had it. It wasn't quite as bad as it got when I was in my in my mid 40s, but I still had enough where I could have brought up depression. I just didn't have the the confidence or the comedic chops and also the audiences, you know, from performing in in Boston, the audiences are not going to listen to it to a 20 something talk about his his depression. They just want to hear really fast, funny, loud jokes. So. It was in my 40s, moving back to Massachusetts, needing to address the fact that I looked like a, a person who was mentally ill. My hair was never in a combed position. My clothing was rumpled or or unclean frequently. I had to address why I was jutting my lip out all the time and biting it, and my hands were shaking terribly. So I started doing jokes about being depressed and anxious and sort of the the joke that was the I guess the keystone or the the main building block was saying have you ever been recognized in the psych ward people would laugh and they'd lighten up and I'll and I would tell the story of being recognized in the in the psych ward and then I would do these stories that could only be written by a depressed person but I never mentioned that I was depressed. And then I started to highlight it and expand on it. And then when I met uh, Mike Bonfiglio, who directed the special and was sort of Judd's, Judd Apatow's producing partner on the, on the project, he asked me, well, did you ever have this experience? Like, did you ever make a suicide attempt? What was ECT like? And he sort of had me write jokes pertaining to these subjects. And so when I started the project, I had about 15 or 20 minutes about depression and my hospitalization. And by the time we shot it, we had to cut 90 minutes down to about 60 minutes of of material. So it was following also a time where I had written five minutes of jokes in about four years. I was so blocked. I mean, I can't call it blocked. I was just depressed and discouraged and I, I had a hard time really feeding myself and getting out of bed. I mean, if it wasn't for my dogs walking them every day, I may not have left the house for months. It's amazing that, you know, when you think about that person, what what could you have told that guy? What what could anybody have said to that guy who would have made it easier? I mean, everything that I would have said was actually said to me that this isn't your fault that this is a an illness a, a brain chemistry issue but the problem is is that the very brain that you need to get out of depression has been hijacked by depression so the, they're saying it's not your fault and my brain is saying oh it's your fault you're a horrible person this is a punishment from god and it's hard to argue with the source of the argument it's just and and I would fight back occasionally, and it would it would overwhelm me. And and the thing was is that 
the anxiety combined with the depression. So I, I, it was agitated and it was painful and it almost felt like every waking hour was, was pure agony. That's our show. Now, <laughs> I, <laughs> okay. See ya. I just want to say you are so it's so comfortable to talk to you because you are comfortable. You are lying oh. in a prone position. You are on the side. I've never had yeah. anybody who I've talked to on Zoom who's been on a bed on the side. Yeah, and I, like, and I think it's a whole new style. I think it's going to become well, <laughs> a thing. I live in, in Manhattan. Well, in Harlem, we have two rooms. My wife is using the living room right now, so we really only have a bed in our in our bedroom. So it's the there's not enough room really to put in a, any other accoutrement for a for a podcast. But but yes, I am prone. Oh, I love it. I love it. So there's a couple things here that are amazing. I mean, first of all, it's it's not enough, Dianu. It's not enough <laughs> that you have to transform your your life, uh, a crippling, uh, you know, depression. But you now have to make it into a performance and you now have to figure out how to make this this funny. You know, what I could never do is what you did. And we see it on the special and that's go in front of an audience, not have material about it and just state it, just state yeah. the facts. And yeah. that's almost what you have to do. You have to almost do that. And I couldn't do it. I couldn't do the fact I had to put. I had to put some, a little spicing on top of it or I couldn't do it. Yeah, it's the hardest part for comedians. And I am grateful to Michael, my director and and Judd, who gave me that permission, I would say. But this sentence, this paragraph does not have a joke. They told me, well, you've you've earned some nonfiction. This is a narrative. I mean, the whole thing is. I didn't want to be self-indulgent, sort of the cliche of the one man show, which is that it's not it's not funny enough. There have been some great one person shows. I, I know Chris Gethard and, and Maria Bamford and Hannah Gadsby. They've done wonderful one person shows that are also funny. I guess I was also standing on their shoulders. I had seen people not be funny for a few, few moments and they survived and people appreciated it. So I also had a really generous, small fan base that I had built up that indulged me in these in these flights from not flights of fancy, but flights of sadness and and depth. So I, I was very fortunate. I mean, that's what I keep saying. I couldn't have done it earlier in my career because the audience wouldn't have sat still for this. They would have grown impatient. I mean, there were some nights where I, I, I remember a night in Delaware and a night in Grand Rapids where the people were, one person said, what is this therapy? And walked out, stormed out. That was in Delaware. And then in Grand Rapids, somebody wrote, and I don't know why the manager of the comedy club handed this to me, but they handed me a comment card and written in pencil in all capital letters with exclamation points was don't talk about depression. I mean, I could get a million positive reviews. One person says, don't talk about depression. And I needed to call people, have them talk me down from stopping talking about depression. I mean, it's just, it recedes and it hides, but the, the insecurity and the depression is, is, is always there ready to take the spotlight. 
And what do you do now to when it's ready to take the spotlight? You say, that's our time for tonight. I'm Gary Goldman and I'm going on <laughs> to my life. Yeah. It's, what do you do? Well, I mean, I've had days where I think, oh, man, if I string enough string together enough of these days, I'll be back in the hospital. And I, I have a list of things that I did to get out of it. And they include being around people. They include doing stand up. They include exercising. They include making sure that I've eaten, taken my medication. And then there are there are sort of crisis modes where I'll say uh, I bet like I lost my dog while I was touring the Great Depression. He passed away and I was devastated and grieving. But then it took a turn into that blaming of myself and things that had really nothing to do with grief. And I called my psychiatrist. He added 20 milligrams to one of my prescriptions. I started to feel right in the next few days. I was still grieving, but I wasn't blaming myself and and unable to get out of bed. So I, I'm much more vigilant than I ever have been because one, I never fell to those depths. My my depressive episode, the, the last one lasted nearly three years. So I'm I, I don't want to go back there. But also I I also feel like I owe the audience a happy ending that I, I know so many stories of people who've recovered and then fallen off. They either have to hide it from everybody or they have to lie. And I, I don't want to be in that in that position. Yep. I, I, I really do understand. Not not a similar. I mean, we have a similar background, but what I did is I just stuffed food. I, I made myself uncomfortable so I couldn't get out of bed. Yeah. And then I didn't. Yeah. And so that was day after day for years. And I would disappear and then I'd lie to people. I'd say, yeah. say, where where you been? I'd be like, I've been around where you been or whatever. I just try to pass it off. I'd have people yeah. knock, knock on my door, like pounding on my door. And I'd be watching. I love Lucy passed out, oh. you know, so I, yeah. I know I, I understand. But I also you know, I mean, I, the, the other thing that 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 I think it's such a great question that you asked was what would I tell that person? And again, when I think about all those days that I didn't leave the the bed except to walk my dogs or some days I would just would have my wife walk them because I said I'm not up to it today. What would I say to that guy? I would say you can be depressed. Stop blaming yourself for that's another thing I wish I could have done is not blamed myself and not taken that sort of double hit, which is I feel terrible and I'm going to pile on and bully myself for that. It's so hard to listen. It's so hard. It's the hardest thing is to is to not pile on with yourself. It's really difficult, but it's a lot of what they teach in cognitive behavioral therapy. And I and I and I really extol the the virtues of that, because that, while it probably couldn't have taken me out of the deepest and the and the catatonia that I was experiencing when I'm on the cusp of a, of a day in bed, some some cognitive behavioral therapy, but also just a quick, hey, just go for a walk at any speed, get out of the house and get into the sun and visit somebody or just uh, buy a coffee or something, have have a half hour 
Or the, the other thing that was so helpful that I would tell myself sometimes, and it was so helpful, especially as I emerged from the depths, was just do it for 15 minutes. But also, I, I never told myself this, it could have also been five, and that would have been really helpful. Yeah. yeah. Now, Jennifer, you this mm-hmm. is this is very familiar to you. You do yes. a lot of this kind of work I with do. your clients. Yeah. With CBT and incrementally, whatever you do, just being conscious of it. How do you deal with kids who have depression? And Gary's talking about a particular kind of depression. Yeah. This is, I know yes. people out there. Yeah, I've been depressed mild. I go on with my life. I'm kind of sad. This is not what you're talking about. No. And and what people don't, well, people don't understand depression. They really don't. They just think, oh, get up, take a walk, have a shower, like get out there. And and on some days you can push yourself maybe to do that for five minutes, but there are days when you can't get out of bed. Like getting up to go to the bathroom is epic. You're like a hero for being able to do that. And I don't think people understand that it's a beast it's basically the brain kind of turning on itself. So when you're describing like lying there, you're pummeling yourself while you're lying. Get up, you idiot. Or what's the point? Yeah. Or what are you doing any of this yeah. for? And you have such a good life and you have so much. You're like, you know, the, the conversations that go on in, in people's heads, it's brutal, actually. It's really brutal. Part of the work is to help, and you sort of alluded to this, that helping them understand what depression is themselves, right? It's not a decision. It's not yeah. a choice. It's sort of like, you know, if there was a death in the family and you literally just found out about it 20 minutes before, and then someone's saying, you know what? You got other family members. Why don't you, <laughs> why don't you go have a walk? Like you, you could not possibly. And it feels like that. But what makes it worse is there's no reason for it in, to, in the person's mind. It's really, really tough. And for parents of kids like this, they, first of all, it's excruciating for the parent too, right? To watch their child just not function and not participate in life. But they often do, I won't say all the wrong things because it's so hard to know what to do, but it's a lot of sort of begging them and please get up and think of all the people in the world that have a reason to be in bed. Just all those things that just make it so much worse. And so what I teach parents to do, you know, and I work with kids all through their 20s, is just to sit with them, just rub their back, just hold their hand, just say, I'm really sorry your brain does this to you. You know, And, and eventually if they can do something where they can get up for five minutes, just get a drink of water just stand up and then get back in bed. And there's certain days that you, you know, you might have some planks where you might be able to make yourself something to eat. But, and I don't know if this happened to you, but what often happens is there's so much dialogue in their heads about, well, I should eat, but I don't know what to eat. And what can I eat that isn't too much trouble? And that's too many steps. And if I don't eat, then I'm going to get more depressed. And if I can't even eat, then I'm the biggest loser and I can't get out of bed. And there's such a fight in your head that you just give up and stay exactly where you are. And I don't think people realize anyone who's that dark, who actually gets through the day and opens their eyes to another one is a hero. You've already done a ton of work yeah. Just waking up the next morning. I don't think people get that. No, it's such a great point. And I mean, it's so hard to describe that. That's what's so frustrating, especially for writers who are trying to get this uh, across and the word depression is, is so limited because it also is used by people to say, well, I, the, the Red Sox lost, I'm depressed, Yeah, but it's, it's not the same word. So it's, it's so frustrating, but your, your analogy about the, the death in the family is, is so helpful. And also when you say it's not a decision or a choice, yeah, it's just, Yeah. yeah, it's just this beast that is, has attacked. And, and even as I, 
put out the great depression i before anybody had seen it i thought i didn't get it down i didn't explain exactly what it was i i couldn't find oh, the right no. wording it, and it, and it, if yeah. i didn't have people like mike and judd who i could trust because my brain doesn't tell me the truth uh, uh, i need that sort of other person to say no it's it's your brain telling you this is searching for it's, yeah. it's not even a perfectionist brain it's just an abusive brain, abusive brain. that yeah. would have and kept me from releasing it yeah and it doesn't make sense like at the depth of it it's just you just feel so unentitled to being there that's yeah. the hardest part. And these are things I hear over and over again from the kids I work with and the adolescents and the young adults that I work with. And part of the work, I mean, CBT is huge. Learning how to understand what mental illness is and how to talk to yourself about it. Knowing that on certain days, maybe you can do one thing, maybe two. And, yeah. and that's epic. And if you can get that done, that's amazing. And there's other days and it's inexplicable. So sometimes kids will say they wake up and they're like, okay, I feel weirdly like I want to participate in life today. It doesn't hurt to be alive today. And then a lot of the mistakes that they make is they try to get a bunch of stuff done on days like that. Yeah. And then what I found is that the brain will do a clawback. It'll be like, oh, you thought you could be happy. You thought yeah. you could get some stuff done. Nope. You're yeah. going to now go back to bed for a few days. And it's it's exhausting. And it's this tireless cycle. And it it takes a team of people who get it and people who love you. And medication is certainly very, very helpful. Yeah. Having parents that just don't try to pull you out of it, but are willing to just be still with well, you. Yeah. Well, this you know? is impossible for a parent, right? Because a parent from our oh, parents' right. generation. Get up. Yeah. <laughs> don't <laughs> understand. They don't understand their own feelings. How are they going to get into this? How are they going to? They don't sit. They react or they control right. or they do. They're trying to help. Their intentions are good. If you don't know how to manage your own feelings, how can you help somebody who is going through this kind of this kind of illness. Well, the hard part too, is that often these kids and these people who struggle this way or feel terrible that they're putting their families through this, like awful for putting their families through this. And, and I really train parents to just, it's just sit there, just be there, dart in and out. Cause it's too much. Sometimes you get depressed yourself and you just have to go take some space, but come back a few minutes later. I'm still here. I love you. What do you need? Uh, sometimes they can't even tolerate that. Go away. I'm not worth talking to. Just leave me. It's just really hard and people don't get what it is. But over time, as you kind of learn to witness yourself, that's a big part of it is just like, okay, here I am. I'm in the, I'm on a trampoline. I'm on the down. I'll be here for a while. My brain will let go eventually. None of the good days, you kind of take that moment and try to move forward. You can climb your way out. You can. It's just a beast. Well, you talk about CBT and about a self-dialogue, a self-relationship, a, a, a talking to it, almost like it's another being, it's another person. Like you talk about anxiety, but it's different. Can you start that dialogue when you're in that space? Or if you're in that space, are you just, you're just done, right? You have to just say, I'm in this space and I have to just well, do we'll, this we'll now. Both, we'll both answer that. But the people I work with will say, in the darkest moments, you, there's no rational thinking, really. You're in pain and you just need to get through it and just be still. In moments where there's some clarity, where your frontal lobe comes back on a little bit, then you can start that dialogue and that self-talk. And part of it, and if this sounds so crazy, but you kind of have to see the depression and picture it. I have the kids that I work with picture it as, I don't know, some fuzzy monster or something and actually start to befriend it. 
Like it, it actually, depression is self-preservatory. It's so ridiculous, but it actually, it loves you so much. It wants to kill you. It's just, it really, it wants you out of pain. It wants you to just, and to stay still, just lie there. Just don't do anything. Don't do anything that's going to disappoint you. Don't, don't let one more person down. Just be on the floor, lay on the floor. You can't get any lower than the floor. So in a weird way, it's trying to save you. And so I have them imagine that it's this thing and you start saying you are fierce. You are so powerful. You are so strong. And I get it. You're trying to help me. You love me. You're trying to save me, but I can't breathe. And, and you kind of just begin to make friends with it. And weirdly, that can help sometimes, especially with younger kids that are really struggling with depression. Having that, like talking back to it, and, and, but not in a mean way, like get out. I hate you. That just makes the anxiety, that just makes the depression bigger. It's easier for them to imagine something and mm-hmm. it's easy for, for them to conjure something up. But I'm just thinking about, look, okay, so now you're you're climbing out of it, but you're also talking about it, which is a therapy. Yes. But, you, but on top of it, you have an act. You have you're yeah. performing for people. So what if some of the jokes don't go over so well and they're about depression and they're about your experience? And then all of a sudden it's like, shit, maybe I shouldn't do this. I am so glad you brought that up because that was one of the, the pivotal changes in my life that changed everything for me because my mood was was so dependent on how the audience reacted, especially to the new things. And the new things were always about depression. I would get on stage at the beginning of this and I would say, and I was being honest, but they would laugh at this. I would say, you have no idea how much your response to this will affect how I feel tomorrow morning. And, and I resent it. I resent it. It would get a laugh. And then I, I happen to be reading a New Yorker article about David Foster Wallace. And, and in it, they had shown a picture of one of his notebooks. And in the notebook, there was a, a quote that he had taped inside the notebook. And I said, I need to find out what that quote says. And, and it took me a while, but I, I found it. And it was from, from uh, Samuel Beckett. And it said, and I, and I know it was excerpted from something that wasn't as hopeful. So I'm so glad that I didn't get it from, from its original source. But it said, ever tried, ever failed, no matter. Try again, fail again, fail better. Fail better became my mantra. I said, I can go on stage and bomb and I should. I have to in order to, in order to take this next step to make this leap. I, I need to fail because that's the only way I'll know if I'm actually trying anything risky. I was not trying as hard as I could because I was afraid of what it would mean if they didn't like it. I knew that the next day was ruined. I wouldn't get out of bed. And then maybe the next show would go well and I'd feel better, but maybe it wouldn't. And it could get really bad. I, I, I mean, it could set me back. So, I, I mean, these things, it, it almost the entire thing almost felt blessed because what are the chances that I ran into that to that quote? I guess I'm always looking for it. So that helps. But looking for that, finding that quote that relieved me of all responsibility to be perfect every night. What a gift that is. That is the yeah. gift of a lifetime. But fail better. Not feel better, but fail ultimate, better. Ultimate, like letting go and allowing and embracing. That's freedom. Yeah. It's just really, really hard to do. 
It's so hard. And it's, it, it answers the perfection thing, because I don't know what the connection between the perfection and the self-abuse and depression is. I don't know how it all works together. You know, Jennifer. I can speak to that. Speak to that. Speak to that. Not all, but a lot of people who get severely depressed are pretty brilliant. Like they're they're deep thinkers and overthinkers. They make connections, comedians especially, they can make these incredible connections. And when the brain is going in the right direction, it's it'll work. It's great. But the brain has an equal and opposite reaction to that. It can you can be you can live in the shadow of that which you did for a long time, Gary. And that's sort of the, it's the shadow of your potential. Being afraid of failure is huge. Effort is a tricky one because if I put effort in and then I don't do well, then that's scary. So maybe I just won't put in any effort and then I can't fall very far. And you just end up in, and then you hate yourself for not trying. And then you are too scared to try. And, and the brain fractalizes. It just, t- this kind of a brain just divides things into smaller and smaller and smaller and smaller pieces until you basically can't move and it's, it's ugly. It's really hard, but they're amazing brains in there. Those kids that are in. So, so Gary, the, having this, the courage to, to create this piece of art and this work, you don't know how many people you're speaking to that are in bed thinking they're the only people in bed. It is so scary and, you know, and so lonely, but, and they feel so unentitled to be there. They're so afraid. And so to hear you talk about this and they recognize it is pretty important, I think. Well, that that's so nice to hear because that was another another component of it. There are two things that that come to mind. One was that my mother said a lot of the wrong things over the years. But while I was living at home and going out to the clubs and doing this depression stuff, I would come home and I would feel very good about the show, if only because I had talked about depression that night. That was the goal. Just talk about it. Doesn't have to get the room excited and laugh, but just talk about it. Be funny at the end. You have some jokes that will always work, but talk about the depression and and get it out there. And I would come home and it was late. My mother was always still up watching the the news or, or whatever late at night. She would say, how did it go? I would say, well, I talked about depression and either she forgot she said it every time or she just wanted to say it every time. She said, you know, you're going to help a lot of people. That has to be the prime directive of the show. Not not so much yeah. I'm going out to help, help a lot of people, but rather if I help people, then it will be enough. It doesn't have to get on HBO. It doesn't have to make me a, a, a star. It doesn't have to change my career. If I help some people and I, I forget who the comedian was, Ed, and maybe you can remind me who it was, but there was a comedian and I think it was a Boston guy who said, if I can make one person laugh tonight, then I suck. I'm I, I, I need to get out of this business. I don't know who it was who said it, but I sort of twisted around and said, if I can help one person, then it will be worthwhile. Yeah. Well, and that's probably what you got you out of bed on those days, too. Yeah. Just being able to do that. That's well, these these connections. I cannot say enough about fail better. I think I that is that. the greatest thing. I, posters. I mean, that is such a great thing. There are so many people walking around who are beating themselves up for being human. So many people, most of the people I would say on the planet do that in some sense. But fail better does two things. It lets you know that failure is okay, and that failure is how you learn and that that's how you grow. And it lets you know that you can do it better by doing it. 
Yeah. And that is amazing. Those two words together. Fail better. I love it. Fail better. And people are going to say, I'm th- I thought you said feel better. I did not say feel better. I said <laughs> fail better. What's wrong? with? And then I'll blame them. But I mean, right. that is Gary. How much do you so when you're on stage at Carnegie Hall, are you saying fail better? Oh, I mean, at that point, I've failed so many times and sort of uh, cut away that those lines that failed that by that night, I'm fairly certain that it'll work. And if it doesn't work, it's not because I didn't put in all the effort to give them a, a show that I had that I had practiced and adjusted and, and made right. So there are there are moments when maybe something doesn't get a laugh and I'll and I'll think. But I, I know that that is a, something that somebody along the line enjoyed hearing. And that, that's the other thing that is so helpful when you're able to do television is that you hear from a lot of people who weren't in the room but that found something funny that obviously I found it funny. I said it. I thought it was worthwhile, but in the room, for whatever reason, the audience didn't react to it. So, so that's really helpful. And and also with the, with the um, great depression, I hear still three years later from people every day saying how much it was helpful to them. And so I'm, I'm able to see that just about everything I, I said appealed to somebody. That's amazing. Fantastic. Well, I was just going to say too, like it's more necessary right now than ever. Like as a a mental health worker, people are having a really hard time. Many, many people and services are overloaded. People are waiting for services, whether it's private or public and, and kids are really struggling. It's, it's a really hard time out there. So any, that's why we do this show, right? As much as we can to help people and give them tools and strategies. Ed and I always talk about how it's a practice. We try to make sure there's a strategy in every show, but that's why it's so important to talk about because the depths of depression, people don't really talk about, not as much as they should. So the fact that you're doing it, I think is really huge. And now there's, uh, there's a different, there's so many different techniques and tools and things that you can do. When I heard ECT, I didn't know what it was originally. And I've been in therapy my whole, I mean, I know, I, I thought I knew everything. Now, my family had that when it was something different. Right. Long time ago. But I've had neurofeedback, which is sort of a cousin to this. Okay. Uh, and I loved it. And it changed the way I looked at things. But I had to, you have to keep, keep doing it, you know, yeah. little bits at a time. But this is what you talk about too, Jennifer, which is the brain. And how to get the brain working either in the right direction or to stimulate the brain to work in the right direction. Yeah. And it, it, so, you can't do such a big swing either. Like to someone who's lying in bed, hating themselves for being in the bed and feel like they have no right to be in the bed, to tell them to think about all the things that are good in their life. They can't even do that. It's like shining a flashlight in someone's eye. Like you can't, the brain can't process that. You can get the brain to process one small thing. Okay. My blankets are soft or the temperature in the room is okay, but my life is still shit, but okay. <laughs> you, know, you find some little thing and then you practice hanging on to that. And then you take the next little tiny step up and then the next little tiny step up. And then the next, little, and if you, if you jump too far, your brain's not going to let you, gonna, what are you doing? Being happier. What are you doing? Feeling good. Get back in here where you belong, right? It literally yanks you back down. And then you take a minute, you thank it. Thanks for being sassy and feisty and looking out for me, but we got to learn how to live together. And you keep climbing up and it's, you're lying there anyway. So I tell my kids that are struggling. Sometimes I talk to them that there's, you know, a lot of my sessions are online and they're in the dark with the lights out and they, they, I'm talking to them while they're 
in that state. And we practice just thinking one neutral thought that's slightly better than the thought they just had because it's way big. It's way too much of a leap. And conceptually, we talked about this a lot, but conceptually, the idea that my brain is trying to do something for me. Yeah. It's a conceptual thing. My brain is working and it's doing something. It thinks I'm in danger. That is what's happening right now. It thinks danger. Yeah. And, and And it's doing that. When I was a kid growing up, nobody, you didn't have an awareness that you had a brain. You didn't have an awareness that you felt in danger even, and you couldn't speak it. I couldn't say to somebody, I feel like I'm in danger or I feel like I'm afraid. I just stuffed my feelings. I just ate a box of cereal. I mean, that was, you know, and then I couldn't get out of bed and I didn't have to deal with it. So ECT, what is that? How did you get to it? And what's happened with you doing that? The best analogy I heard for what was going on prior to me going into the hospital was because I was still trying to go to therapy. I have a therapist and I would go. I mean, we would have a 45 minute session where all I did was talk about how I had made fun of a girl when I was eight years old. This was part of the how I felt about myself was part of the punishment uh, that I was paying for. Things of a similar nature were my sessions. And as I look back on it now, I think even then I could have said, yeah, I know this is this is depression talking, but this is all I want to think about. This is all I feel. And I'm I'm crying about it and I'm going to go home and cry about it. And until I fall asleep, I'm going to feel terrible about it. So my my psychiatrist said going to therapy right now is like trying to have an electrician. We rewire a house while the house is on fire. And he was saying this for years and I would push it off. I'd feel better for a few months, go back into the to the bed. Anyhow, he would say, come into the hospital. We'll take care of you. Unfortunately, I'd seen movies and depictions of psychiatric hospitals that were horrifying, made me more afraid of them than what I was doing to myself. Finally, I got to a point where it had been two and a half years. Nothing had worked. And I had tried nine different medications and a day program where I would go in just for a few hours during the day. And and that didn't seem to help. I was worried about the, the cost of it, whether my insurance was going to cover it. I just I I broke down and, and he had told me about ECT, a friend of mine. I had brought it up with she had done research about it for a novel she had written. Somehow I found a TED talk by Sherwin Newland, who was a a surgeon who was in a state of catatonia for years, maybe even decades. A doctor, maybe even an intern had suggested they try ECT, which hadn't been tried on people, but try it at a very low dose. It saved his life. He gave a TED talk he returned to to doing surgery. I mean, I, I recommend that to anybody who's considering this treatment. Now that the treatment itself, I would I would be woken up at seven o'clock in the morning. They would take me down in a wheelchair. Doctors and anesthesiologists and a doctor and some nurses would apply some electrodes to my head. They would give me a general anesthesia, a muscle relaxer. An hour later, I would wake up not remembering anything 
of course, because I was asleep, but I remembered them putting the things on me. I remember them telling me to count down from 10. Within three of these treatments, the anxiety that was, honestly, I wanted to kill myself to get rid of the anxiety. This sounds like a comical attempt, but I assure you, I thought putting a plastic bag from an appliance over my head was going to kill me one night. And then I went to my wife and I said, I just did this. I should go to the emergency room. That anxiety that caused me to put that plastic bag over my head disappeared within three treatments within a week of being in the hospital. And then the depression started to lift. So it's, it's incredibly effective and quick. There are memory issues. My friend said, if you're dead, you have no memory. Also, my doctor pointed out depression causes a lot of memory loss. The depression is called by a lot of doctors faux dementia, where there were things I don't remember. It had nothing to do with the, the ECT. It was because I was depressed at the time. I wasn't making memories the way I, I normally do. Anyhow, the, the side effects were, were negligible compared to the benefits of, of ECT. If I tried it, is there a chance that I could erase my bar mitzvah? <laughs> I'm just it's asking unlikely. for, I'm asking, I don't know. It's unlikely. Okay. <laughs> I just want, I just want to know. I'm just, I just have a curiosity about it. This is amazing. I, I just can't. I don't know. I can't say enough about this. I just fail better. I'm going to take with me the rest of my life. I swear to God, you are the king. You are the king with that. <laughs> that was Samuel are, Beckett. Well, Samuel Beckett, I don't know him well, but uh, I know a little bit. But you are the king. You are the okay. king via Samuel. No, I'm not calling Samuel Beckett the king. You're the king. What's going on now when you're touring around and you're doing you're doing performances? Of course, you're happy when you're performing, right? You're yeah. pretty, pretty engaged when you're performing. Yeah. Is there new stuff? Is there new material on this subject or on the subject of mental fitness, mental health in general that's going into the act or where is it gone? For the shows that I did that are the, the show after the Great Depression. So say I. I went to Omaha, Nebraska. So all they've seen since the Great Depression is nothing. I update them and I tell them that I'm thriving. And I also tell them I was convinced that success would delete depression, that I would feel better about myself after I was a success. But it was the opposite. I didn't get any success until I felt well the feeling well was the success. And then I just told the story because, and I gave my perfect example is Bruce Springsteen went on antidepressants, felt better, wrote his Broadway play, wrote a book talking about his depression. I say that Wellbutrin is more effective than being Bruce Springsteen because Bruce Springsteen in my, in my mind is the hardest worker the mo with the most talent, the epitome of famous and rich. And he was unhappy, which just tells you that it has nothing to do with achievement. Yeah. But we're told as a, as I was told indirectly and directly, pretty much you'll be rich and happy. You won't yeah. be happy until you're rich. Only rich people are happy. We're miserable because we're so poor and it's such a lie, but it's a lie that greases capitalism. 
Yeah, that, that is exactly right. If it, a happy culture, happy people who are taking care of themselves and who are conscious turn into human beings and not consumers, and then you yes. have a problem, then your yeah. society is going to come to a close because that's what this whole thing is. It's life, liberty and the pursuit of happiness. It's not happiness. No, it's the right to pursue <laughs> it, to pursue something outside that's outside of you. Yeah, that you can only get from the inside, but you have the right to pursue it. Yeah. Wow, that, that is so beautifully put. It's so good. Ed. And we talk about that all the time. No, no, nothing you can buy, nothing you can drink, nothing you can smoke, nothing you can, no stage, nothing. It, it, it has to be something that you, you're the hero of your own story. And that's, that's really the answer. And that's across the board. You will hear that in self-help books, religious texts, like it's everywhere. It's just such a hard message to accept because it sounds like, well, I'm doing this to myself, but it's so much more complicated. Than yeah. that, you really the most important relationship in your life is the one between you and you. That's the truth. And and that feelings and thoughts are a two way conversation. It's not a one way yeah. conversation. It's yeah. a dialogue. It's a dialogue. It's a, yeah. if you if you let them speak without answering, you're going to have a lot of feelings that are going to be intense, and they're not. Gonna, it's not going to feel good. It's going to feel very just like it would be if someone was yelling at you and you didn't say anything to them. Mm -hmm. You know, it doesn't feel good. So and then it yells louder, like Jennifer always says, you don't answer the door and people are pounding. That's like your emotions. They're sending you messages. Yeah. They're going to so, pound on the so. door. They're going to kick down the door. Eventually, they're going to sit on you until you and choke you until you listen. That's pretty much how feelings work. So turning yeah. around and honoring them and listening to them and in weirdly sending the depression love. I know it sounds insane because you think of it as this thing that's getting in the way, but it, it's love twisted inside out. It's self-preservatory. It's your brain trying to save you. Literally what depression is, it's, it's a switch in your brain that if you're being chased by something and you know, there's no way out, it's going to get you. There's a switch in the brain that goes, okay, fine. I'm not running anymore. I'm out. Just get it over with and fast. That's it's literally a prehistoric life-saving switch. It's anxiety flips over into depression. That's why they're nasty little cousins. Yeah. Yeah. But those things like from this show, fail better, talk to your feelings. You didn't do anything wrong. And laugh. And laugh yeah. a little bit. I mean, look, come on. I mean, laugh. go go see Gary and laugh. You, you'll, <laughs> do, you'll do all of it together because you can hear about mental health. You can listen to the show. And we and that's to me is like. The best thing in the world, when I was a kid, I knew it, that if you could talk about what was going on inside you, that's it. There's no, nothing is more powerful than humor and emotion. Nothing, nothing, nothing to me. So you're going to come back. You have to come back many times on this show. You don't have a choice. Oh, I'd love that. <laughs> I'm, I'm happy to, and I'm, I'm going to be in, in LA in June. So perhaps we could do an in-person. Uh... We're going to do an in-person. Awesome. Okay. We're going to do it. I'll see you when you're here. Awesome. All right. All right. Awesome. Gary Goleman on tour everywhere. Follow him. GaryGoleman.com. If you haven't seen The Great Depression, see it and remember to fail better. Yeah. I can't okay. wait to see you guys in, in person in June. This was a revelation. I had so, so much joy tonight. Thank you. Oh, good. Thank Pleasure. you. And thanks for everything you do. This is great. We'll see you again soon. Oh, well, thank you, Jennifer, for what you do. And, and Ed, and, and I'm uh, honored to be a part of this. So thanks. Good night. Bye. Take care. Say Take well. care. Jennifer.